Hello everyone, hello Paul. And hello Sophie. Um, welcome to the room everyone. Um, this is a lifestyle medicine room. I'm Potha Hajat. I'm a public health doctor and I have with me Sophie Atwood who's a behavioural change scientist. And um, today the topic is on uh, clinical and societal norms around body weight. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Paul Dolan, who is a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics and an author on two books on happiness that I know of. There may be more. Welcome to the room, Paul. We'd love to hear a little bit about your work. Oh, hello. Can you hear me now? I think I'm... Yes. Oh, Loud great. and clear. Good. Good. No, sorry. Thank you. This is my first time using this uh, app, so bear with me if I have any technical difficulties. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. So it's great to have you here. Um, could you tell the audience a little bit about your work and uh, what you do in your normal day? Oh, yeah, my, my work and what I do in my normal day, they might be two different messages. <laughs> um, no, so uh, uh, I do research into human behaviour and happiness and I'm particularly interested in the relationship between them. It's actually not been that much work done, quite surprisingly, I guess, on how what we do affects what we feel and how we feel affects what we do, and particularly the dynamic relationship between them. That's that's um, one thing that I'm interested in. I uh, use quantitative data, I suppose, mostly in what I do. Um, at the same time, I'm very interested in the role that narratives and stories play in our understanding of our lives and, um, and, and indeed in how we interpret evidence. Is that enough? Yep, that's enough. <laughs> and it's uh, uh, a great combination, having the quantitative and the storytelling side. And that's very much what we tried to bring to um, this room. Um, so we had, you and I had a discussion about a podcast you'd made recently called Fit or Fat, which had some really interesting views on whether we should, in fact, be intervening on... Um, on body weight and obesity in particular. Yeah. Um, um, so I'd like to just maybe give, put on my um, clinician hat and just give a, a kind of clinical viewpoint on um, high body weight and obesity and then hand over to yourself and, and Sophie. Does that work? Yeah, no, I'm totally happy to do this however you want. And hello, yeah. Sophie. Hello. Um, so none of this will be news really but we we know from a clinical point of view um, obesity is a known risk factor for many diseases heart disease diabetes cancer musculoskeletal disease and we see the term uh, of, of it leading to 12 year um, reduction in life expectancy and quite often we, we hear about the very simple equation between the energy consumed through food and energy expended via exercise. And then somehow we make judgments that if, if this balance is not achieved, this somehow um, equates to a lack of willpower or, or some other loss of control or lack of control. But we obviously we know it's, it's really not this simple. And we're still trying to understand the science behind hunger and satiety. Um, and we know that there are many 
factors that influence our body weight um, other than uh, well how we eat and uh, how much we exercise and many of these are environmental availability awareness the relationship that we ourselves have with food and with exercise advertising is one that we sometimes talk about and increasing um, evidence that uh, putting more and more burden on an individual to control their weight without really putting in the necessary changes to the environment rarely leads uh, to success. So that's so I'll, I'll stop there. Um, plenty more to, to come back to if need be. But that's really the where we stand, I think, clinically and from a public health point of view. So I'd love to hear your take. So nothing is ever simple and straightforward. So thank you for drawing attention to my podcast at the beginning. There was, as you as you rightly say, an episode called Fit or Fat, and I would obviously strongly recommend that anyone listening listens to the podcast series. There's five of them so far. Um, and, you know, nothing is in, in life, rare, well, rarely is anything truly duck or rabbit. It's, in, it's a very complex combination of both. So it's a difficult challenge. So let me just say just a couple of things that come to mind in response to what you've just uh said is that I was blown away by reading a book recently by Edwin Gale, The Species That Changed Itself. And this is actually a really good 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 example of how narratives and stories help us interpret and understand data and evidence. And so his book, his basic argument is that we've changed the human phenotype in response to our in as as we do, as we've always done. Um, in response to our environment, we've adapted. Um, we've spent a long time getting taller, um, and now we've got fatter. To the extent that we might wish to consider obesity not now something that is a disease or, a, or an illness that needs to be treated, but actually a, a natural part of the human condition as we've adapted to the environmental changes, some of which you drew attention to in your opening. Um, and we're now starting to see, I think he's got some evidence in there showing that there's some suggestion that obese people are now living slightly longer than previously obese people as we've adapted to changes in our environment. So it's an interesting interesting example of how the stories that we use to interpret evidence can, you know, really under, can, can actually shape and alter the way in which we understand those data. Um, second thing to say um, is... And I'm not, I'm not really trying to provide any, any answers, but just to give us some points for discussion. Um, second thing to say is that, as, as again, you'll know only too well, is that most weight loss interventions don't work. Um, I think the epidemiological data suggests that somewhere you know, up to about 99% of people that gain weight, that lose weight, gain it again. Um, and, and we know that there's physiological as well as psychological reasons why it's harder to keep weight off once you've been fat. So you take two people that weigh 80 kilos, whatever, one that was previously 100, the person that was previously 100 now needs fewer calories to maintain their weight at 80 kilos than the one that's never been heavier. So really difficult. And and the interventions for from what I can gather from, I mean, I'm, I'm, this, is a, this is my main area of expertise, but I know the evidence reasonably well I guess and there'll be people here that can tell me if I'm wrong but 
most of the average effects of those interventions are a kilo or so. Um, of course, they're average effects, so you get some wider variation. But most people put the weight back on that they lose anyway, even if those interventions work in the short term. But there's been very little research into the psychological effects, essentially the happiness and well-being impacts of those interventions. It's almost certainly the case that if there were, we'd show that people just actually essentially make to feel worse, that they enter into these weight loss programs, they don't lose the weight or they lose it and then it goes back on again very quickly and they feel even worse than they did before they went in. Um, they feel guilty, they feel shamed. Um, guilt and shame are to some degree motivators of human action, um, but have quite significant psychological effects in themselves. So once we start accounting for the well-being effects, it might not be that we're doing a good thing with these interventions. And then thirdly, is one final point, I guess three is probably enough um, to get us going, is that there's actually a very weak association between BMI, which is, we, we all know is a very poor measure of healthy weight, but nonetheless it's used quite widely, um, between a person's BMI and their well-being. It's true that morbidly obese people report significantly lower levels of well-being, but there isn't very much of an association up until that point. Now, of course, these aren't causal. We have no randomised controlled trials, so we can't, can't, I can't make causal inference from, from, these, from these data. But it's interesting that there is such a weak association. And I think part of that is because we construct narratives and stories about how happy or miserable other people ought to be based on the conditions and circumstances that we can readily observe about them. And sometimes those kinds of stories are are wrong. Um, so I guess those three points are enough to get us going. One is that we evolved to get to be fat. <laughs> the second is that weight loss interventions don't work. And third, that most people, unless they're morbidly obese, aren't un, un, unhappy anyway. But actually, I'll tell you what, maybe a fourth. Maybe a fourth point to provoke. Because this is, this is, I think, part of what we, what we ought to be doing. Certainly at least what academics should be doing too. The fourth point I make is, and then this really will be my final one, is that one of the reasons that people give about why they care so much about obesity or about many things is that it costs the public purse a lot of money to treat these conditions. And you see headlines written quite regularly about obesity, you know, you know costly NHS, hundreds of billions of pounds, or whatever, tens of, uh, and, and well, no one has actually, as far as I'm aware, again, there might be people on this call that can tell me that I'm wrong, um, has done a proper counterfactual analysis of what would be the case if those people that are fat were fit. Um, because, of course, if they were fit, they would live a lot longer. They would be claiming pensions, which is hugely expensive. They would probably end up in nursing homes and care homes, which are expensive too. Um, so the exchequer cost argument is probably a spurious one. And in any case, if that were a reason to care, then we would probably actively encourage smoking because um, smokers are, well, they probably cost the health services about what they create in um, tax revenues, but they die early. So they actually save quite a lot of money in pension costs. So if we really cared about exchequer costs as our argument, then we would probably encourage smoking. So um, the reason fundamentally is that we have a system one sort of old reptilian brain reaction to seeing fat people that makes us then look for system two reasons to kind of justify why we want to 
uh, be dismissive, disparaging, um, and um, you know have this sort of visceral feeling about them. Um, and and actually, probably like with most things, when we're trying to change people's behaviours, we need to get over ourselves first. Um, I knew it would be great to have you on, Paul, because it's fantastic to have some counter views to what is a very kind of traditional epidemiological approach to obesity. So let me um, give you a response to those four points, then I'll, I'll move to Sophie. So you're absolutely right. Costs on the public purse and the counter factuals are rarely looked at with real life behaviours or real world behaviours and real world interventions. But in fact, the Institute for Economic Affairs did actually uh, produce some really neat studies on um, the net cost of um, smoking, obesity and um, alcohol abuse. And actually, um, the, the, there is a net cost saving to the public purse of 23 billion pounds um, if we combine those three. So you're absolutely right. There is no, um, there, there isn't an overall um, additional cost. Uh, so that cost argument would go out of the window if we're looking at all of those together. For obesity, it is there is an actual net cost, but it's very small. It's um, less than two percent of the the total health budget. Um, so I think we can we can take the cost argument out for sure for obesity. Um, BMI certainly not um, the best predictor for health outcomes, but there is a, a very reliable predictive health outcomes, which is how much fat we store around our organs. And that is a very strong predictor of outcomes such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, etc. Um, and um, um, we can't, we clearly can't discount that um, completely. But when we measure these, we're really looking at um, life years with what we may look at quality adjusted life years or disability adjusted life years and you've brought in a really interesting concept which is um, a well-being adjusted life year or, or looking at people's well-being and um, I certainly don't know if that's been measured um, in relation to obesity um, so um, Sophie I'll come to you you may know a bit more about um, not on the what they typically call a Wally, which is a well-being adjusted life year. And Paul, you know much better than I will how that gets measured. But I think it does tap into a bigger question if we're talking about impacts on well-being of, of kind of what exactly are we talking about there? Because it can get measured in different ways. And for some measures of well-being, obesity might be a really tightly linked so if you're thinking about kind of physical well-being or functionality you might find a very strong association with obesity whereas other more generic measures of well-being like overall satisfaction obesity might be one of many different factors that may play into your judgment of well-being and I know Paul this is an area you've researched loads so I was just wondering if you could maybe give us a bit of an overview on on kind of how well-being is measured in that context yeah, so interestingly, so this is kind of like a sort of journey through my through my academic life because in the beginning I did all a lot of work on qualities, quality adjusted life years, which some people may be familiar with, which is kind of a a similar thing in a way. Really, we adjust a life year by 
its health-related quality of life. And places like NICE, National Institute, what well, well, was called National Institute of Clinical Excellence, National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, um, now use those values to inform decisions about whether you know to reimburse Pfizer's new wonder drug or something. Um, and the essence is simply to say that we care about two things in life. We care about living longer and we care about living better. Um, a well-being adjusted life year then sort of broadens the quality concept out to capture well-being more generally. So anything that really directly affects how people either evaluate their lives or measures that I would prefer experience them. So how you feel day to day, moment to moment. Um, and you are having a better life when, when you experience more well-being or when that well-being lasts for longer. Um, and so it's an area under curve, essentially. And so what we are able to do is start generating data on, on, on not only who lives the longest, uh, but also who has the most well-being whilst they're alive. Um, and that's where we start seeing, you know, that's where that, 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 those are the kinds of data that I think are fundamentally important to inform our discussions about where our priorities in, well, maybe even in our own lives, but particularly in public policy should be. Because I've become increasingly, I am, I am starting to become increasingly, starting to become, I am becoming increasingly uh, concerned that what we do in behavioural science is really we just have a good idea and in fact it's more than that. We, we know what's good for people um, and so we'll nudge them and shove them in the ways that we think are good for them without proper inquiry into whether those nudges and shoves show up in improving their lives as those people experience their lives. It's kind of why we haven't seen so much research into the relationship between what we do and how we feel, is that we, we have these choice architects, to use the, the language of Thaler and Sunstein, who we go in with their nudges, knowing what's good for people. And when people don't respond in the ways that they would expect them to, or because you know, not everyone does respond to the nudge. It's a question about why the nudge failed, much less about whether actually that nudge is in that person's best best interest. Um, so I think well-bees or whatever metric you might want to use, but adjusting life expectancy by its quality as experienced by those people experiencing it, um, I think will give us a much better guide to know where we should be nudging and shoving. And do you feel that that's something people are able to do? Because I always think of the phrase, the kind of the goldfish swimming in the bowl can't see the water. So it's probably very hard to judge the difference in the quality of your life from, you know, if you're obese versus non-obese to understand. Yeah. Like, how would we go about making that judgment? Is it possible to measure in that way so we can understand whether or not a health recommendation like to keep a body weight at a normal weight is one that's worth the pain of getting yeah, there? Super qu- it is a super question and it's one that, you know, again, it's it's impossible it's impossible to give a good answer to that question in the sense of it being perfectly satisfactory and um, very clear. I mean, because, you know, we've had two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse around what well-being is and we haven't managed to find an answer so we're probably not going to do it during the course of this conversation which but so so of course and i'm very much alert to problems and challenges with various ways in which we might define whether someone's life goes better or well i end up if being pushed into a corner if i'm going to be pushed reverting to allowing that person to tell me um and i and i appreciate that there are 
problems with that. I appreciate that people's lives are sometimes limited in what they what, what what they experience and what they can understand. I appreciate there's also problems with asking people directly questions about how they're feeling. Um, but when push comes to shove, I think that's that's going to be my starting point, and maybe where I end up is that I want to use public resources wherever possible to reduce the real suffering of real people and not imaginations of, of, of how people's lives ought to be if only they knew better. Yeah, that's a great point. I, all three of us have worked in behavioural um, science and it, we make judgments about how people should be living their lives without necessarily understanding um, the complexities of their lives or, or even asking them um, what they would like. And uh, when we talk about BMI, um, there's a, a large discrepancy between the ideal BMI for um, health outcomes, which is around 21, um, and the BMI threshold beyond which it's difficult to remain functional in your daily life and enjoy your life, which would be, I don't think that this would be fixed for everyone, but it would probably be in the high 20s, so maybe 27, 28. And so I guess there's a, a kind of ethical or moral question. Should we continue to be trying to bring the, um, oh, the, the BMI down beyond which we, we have no evidence that it's going to impact the patient's quality of life. It will sh maybe shorten their life. It will maybe give them diseases which um, uh, need treating, but not necessarily their immediate quality of life. Yeah, so I don't know. You're you know, again, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure that there's no good evidence on, a, on there being any significant change in risk of any any health outcomes of a BMI between 25 and 27 um, and yet we bundle all those people together as being overweight um, that does kind of medicalize it and it, of course it gives pharmaceutical companies a huge incentive to come yeah I'd have to I'd have to sorry interject and said the ideal if we look at epidemiological studies the ideal BMI from a health purely health perspective is 21 and anything above that actually um, has detrimental health outcomes but that's purely taking uh, disease, hard disease outcomes. Okay. So that's a long way off from the person not being able to function in their in their daily life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It is actually really interesting. I watched the. Been watching some of the top of the pops from the from the eighties. So kind of from when I was the age of my children watching these old rock stars, and. One thing you notice about everybody then is that every, they were all really skinny. Um, it was like, you know, without without exception. So there has been a, you know, obviously this is what the evidence shows. There has been that massive transition from then to now. Um, but as I say, the question, I don't know, I don't know we've got any good answers. I do know that we've got answers that what we've been doing isn't been working. Um, and, you know, I, I just, just, it just it just troubles me when we when we when we kind of keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Whatever Einstein's definition of insanity was, um, is that maybe recasting? You know, we need. To, I'm trying to, that's why I'm kind of struggling around for different ways to recast the problem because I think that's uh, that's gonna that's what we need to do. Um, but I also wouldn't just the other point is just not looking through a through a health lens as. To, 
cited by people who may work in healthcare or have a particular background or perspective um, are becoming increasingly, again, you know, it's this concern about knowing what's best and right for people. We do this in financial decision making, we do it in health behaviours, um, we're prescribing what the good life looks like and it's nearly always a version of ourselves. Um, it's 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 rarely um, alert to and sensitive to the considerable degree of heterogeneity that exists in the population. I guess one counter argument that I've heard to that point, because working in public health, you do get often people going, you're kind of a, a, like a health Nazi. <laughs> and the, I guess the point is there's no vacuum to the decision. So it, the question is more who who do you want to shape the yeah. the morality around what you're doing? So if you take away the viewpoint of uh, people who work in health who have a bias towards health, then you might be left for the market to then dictate kind of what you consume. And I, want, I mean, it's then up to you to consider whether you want a healthcare practitioner or a salesperson working in a, you know, fast food chain to be the person yeah. who dictate what's what goes in your body. So I wonder whether it's, do we ever have the luxury of not being able to take a moral stance? No, again, a super question. So I, you're, I mean, you're right in the sense that no environment is benign. I mean, it, there's always going to be influences on our behaviour. You know, as we all know, many of which lie below conscious awareness that will be be framing and shaping us all the time. So, you know, the question then becomes, who's the choice architect? I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I guess there's a couple of reasons why. One of the things that's really interesting in that is that there's been lots of people who would, you know, be suspicious of governments and nanny states and um, you know, public health officials kind of intervening and yet are readily happy to, to kind of let markets do it or to let companies do it or to or to set you know to to, to, to uh, allow firms to have access to their data and so on. Um, and one of the arguments that's put for that is because you can in a sense you can you can opt out um, of using I don't know whichever supermarket you use, there's always others available. Whereas you don't you don't get a chance to opt out from the government, I guess that's the that's the that's the argument that's put. I mean, of course, it's not not entirely convincing, of course, because you have to get your food from somewhere. Um, and so, I guess that's where I guess that's where the regulation comes in, and maybe more. And as many cases have been shown to be more effective than any of the behaviour change interventions that require individuals to change their behaviours to get you know companies and the markets involved, and you know, getting, for example, companies to reduce the sugar content or salt content of their food um, in ways that people barely notice that you know the small but quite significant changes over time. And I think that's actually where we're going to get maybe significant traction on some of the other fundamental problems of our of our time, which include issues around climate change, for example, is getting the markets to innovate in ways that provide us with greener energy or, um, you know, incentives in, in the market that will bring about these well-being returns that might not be possible by trying to get individuals to do it for themselves. So some of these types of interventions that you mentioned, Paul, um, so 
some work I did with Vitality where there is a 25% rebate on healthy food purchases at a particular, so in the UK, Ocado, in the US, Walmart, etc. And actually that led to a huge shift in what people were purchasing. So a 9% increase in healthy foods, which for a health intervention is huge, assuming that they're eating that food. And there are similar uh, models for putting on um, uh, food labels related to the um, carbon um, footprint of that of that food item. Um, but again, coming back to who who decides um, how, how people should be eating? Should we be making that choice for them? If something is cheaper, people are going to to buy that. It's better for the environment. It's better for their health. Uh, and that's what we that's the push we're putting uh ourselves but we heard publicly yesterday behavioral scientists being called charlatans so you know are, are we ethically and morally uh justified to be making those assumptions yeah so let me just say let me just so three things come to mind first of all the role of um, subsidies versus taxes. I mean, one of the things that anyone trained in Econ 101 will know is that you have an income and a substitute, you have an income effect and you have a substitution effect when you change prices. Um, and so a subsidy allows people to buy more of everything, basically, which includes that they could still continue to consume as much or more of the bad stuff, if you like. So a tax is a more effective uh, means to do that. Um, the second point around the um, whether they whether they eat it or not, which is a really interesting question. When I was um, working on scoping out the Behavioural Insights team all those years ago in the Cabinet Office, I, I, I remember one of the policy wonks came in and said they found this really interesting study that showed that if you made the supermarket, if you made the fruit and veg bit of a supermarket trolley bigger, people would buy more fruit and veg. And my first question was, was do they do they eat it? Um, because of course no one no one knows when to eat a pear anyone that's listened to the Eddie is on that <laughs> or avocado <laughs> I guess but, but uh, yeah right uh, but I've never seen a Mars bar rot so um, we we so let's assume that people do eat that food one of the interesting lines of inquiry that led me into and some research I've been doing in, well with um, with various people over the past few years at the LSE is on the the role of a spillover effect. So whether by engaging in one behaviour it makes it makes it more or less likely that you'll do something else. And uh, oh, sorry, I, I apologise for that. Um, and um, so what we've what we've looked looked at is essentially, you know, do you, if you eat an apple, one or two things can happen. Is that well, one of many things can happen? But you could either feel full and not eat a Mars bar, uh, or you can actually give yourself license because you've been a good person to eat a Mars bar or you or 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 you might or you might do a, a, a whole host of things but one of the things that we know is that no single behavior sits in a vacuum and there's been remarkably um, little uh, research into whether for example the increased consumption of fruit and veg has led to people eating more less or the same of what they had before it's entirely possible and probably likely that it has had no effect or people might be even eating more. So it's a really interesting question that we don't have any good 
evidence. Again, I'd be, I'd love to be pointed to something that shows this. But whether, but whether, as a nation, of course, we know that we are eating more fruit and veg. But whether that's actually holding everything else constant led to us eating more or less bad food. Um, then one final reflection on the ethics of all of this, and I can't. It's been lovely to have a conversation that's lasted half an hour and to have not mentioned COVID, um, <laughs> but I'm going to. One of the things that behavioural scientists, I think, have to do as a first order moral question is not lie to the people who's, who we're trying to change the behaviour of or nudge. Um, we can actually probably have quite a significant effect by doing so in the short term. But it does risk undermining our endeavour in the longer run. And I do think there are some serious questions to be asked about the ethics of making people feel more threatened by the risk of COVID than was the case. It's absolutely right that we told people that their behaviour will have impacts on other people that might be at higher risk. But to increase our own personal level of threat I think is a really questionable and suspect thing to do. When we were, um, when Facebook manipulated the emotions of Facebook users, um, I think you probably remember that, that there was this uh, big outcry about what Facebook had done, and quite rightly so, they changed the emotional outputs of people without telling them. That, I think, powers into insignificance to a, a sustained attempt over, over the last 15 months on the part of the media and the government to to make people feel more more uh, scared than they than they personally were and let me be absolutely clear again i'm not saying that people ought not to be made afraid for the impacts of their behavior on other people that's entirely right but to make young people in particular people in their 20s and 30s feel more scared than was the case i think is something that needs to be addressed in the fullness of time yes that's um and it's very unusual to see that level of fear and threat used um, proactively. Um, so as part of Vitality, there was a survey conducted on um, 120,000 people, so very representative, and it looked at activity levels, stress levels, sleep, etc. And the age group who, who were the um, most stressed, losing sleep, not going out to exercise, out of all the age groups due to COVID were millennials who actually are not the ones who are at risk of severe COVID and the older age groups were less affected by the messaging and it seems that the millennials were more affected by the messaging despite them not being the target or, or the highest risk for um, COVID and we hear there are people still shielding. So so these people are then told to return to work without any um, kind of intermediate period where that risk level goes down. And we hear people are still shielding um, despite the risk level going down here in the UK at least. Um, so, yeah, very, yeah, I was very surprised to see that tactic. I do want to come to Sophie on the food waste and uh discrepancy between what people are eating and, and uh, buying and eating because that is her area of work? Um, well, there does tend to be a discrepancy because a third of food that's um, kind of reaches their end consumer ends up in the bin. So, and that's pretty hard to measure really in, in terms of health research. I think a point that um, 
people made in terms of um, moral licensing is an interesting one because the evidence that we see in the space, kind of the environmental space, looking at plant-based food is that when people add in kind of more plant-based, um, kind of environmentally friendly options, they don't necessarily decrease the um, kind of meat-heavy, less environmentally friendly options. And I think the same thing has happened um, frequently when when um, new types of snacks have entered the market. So I think it happened a few years back with cereal bars that were brought onto the market as a kind of supposedly healthy alternative to chocolate. And what you found is no decrement in chocolate sales, so people don't substitute over. So I think a lot of the time... Um, stuff becomes additive in the health space which isn't which means the kind of overall um pie grows bigger rather than kind of <laughs> the slices of it switching i think one question that I, I wanted to ask in the context of this conversation is um if paul you feel like the risks associated with obesity have been overblown potentially in the same way that they have with uh, COVID. COVID. Um, well, I was just wondering why specifically do you think obesity leads to an overblown view of risk? Is it something inherent about obesity, or is it just very, you know, very media worthy? Or and and am I just wrong to make that assumption? Oh, I don't know. I love the fact. I love that. I love that you've made that connection. I haven't. I I, I hadn't myself, and I, I don't know. I mean, we do. I mean, it's interesting how how. So it's just a couple of things come to mind. So first of all, how our own views of our own risks change in response to those risks changing, but not in ways that we might expect, right? You know, so, you know, people that smoke, for example, will often overestimate their their risk of getting lung cancer from smoking. Um, not always in ways, not always that they kind of completely dismiss it or imagine that it won't be them. Um, so it's not, so sometimes it's not clear in which direction it goes for ourselves. Um, but society, there is an interesting, there's an interesting question about, about whether you might, um, it might be legitimate ethical basis in which to make someone feel a little more scared about something in order to get them to engage in a behavior, right? So actually we do that quite a lot when it comes to screening programs. I mean, you don't want, you don't, part of the reason that motivates people to go and get screened for something is a fear of having whatever it is they're being screened for. So actually, you, so so there are legitimate bases in which public policy makers in, intervene to to create a fear. Um, and fear is not too much fear because people bury their heads in the sand, but a little bit of fear is motivation for action. So there are legitimate grounds for doing it, for even you know evoking it to some degree in order to get people to respond the question is by by how much for whom and in what ways and that's really i mean there is a really interesting agenda that follows from this i don't i'm not sure i can say more than that at this stage but i like i like i'd like to think more about about that given given what we've done over the last year to magnify risks in, in you know especially younger people and i do think generally i will i will say this by i know we get on to a rant about covid but i, I will say that that people in their 20s have probably been the most forgotten group of all um we've totally damaged the education of, of young kids um and but we but we've kind of there's been conversations about that at least to some extent but whereas i think 
people in their twenties have been asked to put their life on, lives on hold as if their lives are somehow trivial, as if like relationships, having sex, um, meeting new people, you know, starting out on your jobs are all things that are almost like secondary concerns. Um, and I, and it, it, it kind of worries me that we're going to take a very long while to kind of recast that story about the fact that actually living, living well, as we, you know, we, we sort of talked about this before at the start about wellbeings and so on, that lives go better when they're, when they're longer and better. Um, and I think we've just sort of dismissed quite significantly, actually, the welfare concerns of younger people, but not only children. I uh, completely agree with you there, Paul, and I think that comes back to the well-being index or well-being work. You know, what are we really measuring? And right now, I don't think we're well. We're nowhere near adequately measuring uh, people's lived experiences beyond um, the traditional uh, measures um, in health, particularly when we. But, but, but no, sorry, just just to interrupt you. Sorry, I was going to say that it is. You know, we know that loneliness rates, for example, have been reported as much higher in those age groups than in older age groups. And, and we all know that loneliness is a strong causal factor for dying early. Oh, completely. Um, I'm in agreement with you. So the uh, kind of corollary of that, the health system would try to measure um, maybe suicide rates or mental health, presentation of mental health illness. But actually, those are the polar extremes and loneliness and isolation can have um, an impact on your well-being that does not lead to suicide and mental health. And, and what I'm saying is that that impact is not being measured at the moment. Yeah, yeah completely. Um, yeah. And, and some of the other social determinants of, um, of uh, health and, and well-being, um, the socioeconomic impact of, of lockdowns. Um, so Michael Marmot published a report on the impact of COVID. We really were not supposed to talk about COVID today, <laughs> but it has steered this way. Um, no, but just as a general question, though, why do you think, I mean, this is not, this is also true of karma times too. We know that lonely, we, we know how harmful loneliness is, you know. Why, why do you think we, we haven't seen it as such a significant health concern? I mean, because we know how bad it is for health, let's leave well-being to one side. Why the health service and health services and health practitioners and public health haven't given it the requisite attention. So I think mental health in general has been neglected. Um, and, and again, we're talking about the extremes where uh, we're talking about illnesses, but anything that is a milder version of that, so mental well-being and prevention of mental health has been totally um, omitted and ignored. And, and maybe one of the, maybe one silver lining of COVID is that um, direct consumer prevention of health is now being delivered or, or attempted to be delivered by health tech companies um, and other other ways of, of delivering that, um, including prevention of um, mental health. Sophie, I think you were going to reply. Yeah, it might, it might also be a kind of fear of a, a scope creep in a way, because I guess the question is, where do you boundary what's what's in the responsibility of a health service? And arguably, from a public health perspective, you would want to think about loneliness as well as socioeconomic status. A few people are happy with their jobs and relationships yeah. because all of these things 
impact health significantly. But in a government with a limited budget to spend on health, it's probably very worrying for them to have that conversation because suddenly it's some it's an additional risk factor that would fall in their remit that they'd have to do something about. Um, I think another thing maybe and probably ties back to the the obesity argument is the visibility of the condition because I do sometimes wonder whether obesity is something that is very um, commonly talked about because it's a very visible problem if you want to call it a problem yeah. you can you can clearly see somebody who is obese versus not obese whereas loneliness is much harder as well as many mental health conditions they're, they're much harder to observe and I think that because it's so obvious it's something that then becomes very front of mind and we think about a lot so I'm I'm wondering whether it's also a kind of a very basic fact that it's a concrete visible problem in front of us yeah, so I think that that's so. To return to our earlier uh, to, to to conversation around obesity is that that's what we do. So it is visible, and one of the things that we imagine why we imagine obese people not being happy is because we're imagining them paying attention to something that we're observing. Um, and of course, most, most of our lives are not lived paying attention to the things that other people think we pay attention to. Um, one of the reasons why you know you. You observe people who are not in poverty because poverty makes people miserable. It's very clear from the happiness data. But people who aren't as rich as you, you know, as you are, and you can't imagine them being happy because you think they're paying attention to their money. But, but of course, most of us aren't most of the most of the time. So, it's really difficult for us to understand what other people's in their own experiences are paying attention to when we're sort of looking in from the from the from the from the outside. So. I agree that that visibility point plays a really significant and sometimes misleading part. Okay, we um, can open this up for Q&A if um, there are questions from the audience. Um, so please, if that's the case, raise your hands. Um, there is some work, Paul, this, this is slightly controversial, that um, uh, doctors and clinicians as advocates of health have quite a significant uh, influence on their patients in terms of their lifestyle behaviours. Uh, so some research shown that doctors who smoke, GPs who smoke, um, they have double the rate of smoking um, patients amongst their, their patients than non-smoking doctors. And this is even the case for ex-smoking doctors. Um, it has an impact on BMI, um, overall heart disease risk score. So as clinicians, should we, how much responsibility should we have on, on being advocates and role models? That is a really difficult question. <laughs> That's why I asked you. <laughs> That's a really difficult question. And do you know what? I don't feel like I have to know the. I have to have a. I have to have a clear view on it on everything. And I think I don't on this. So I'm kind of thinking. My mind's going around messenger effects, obviously, which are really significant, right? We follow. We we listen to people who have authority, um, trust, and ideally similarity. They're the three main dimensions of an effective messenger. We talked about that in MindSpace quite a bit. Um, so of course we're going to notice those people that have authority uh, 
trust and similarity. And so, but is it their responsibility that we notice them? Let's think about this with the role models of footballers. You know, is it a football is it a footballer's responsibility to be a role model for young kids? Sometimes I answer that question yes. Most of the times I most of the times I answer it no. Depends on the context. Depends what environment I'm in, or even maybe what even mood I'm in. Whether I answer that question yes or no. But I think most of the time I answer it no. And so I would probably think I don't know if you're if you're going to be. If you're going to be provide, providing recommendations to people about how they should live, it's probably helpful if you walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Does it undermine your message if you're if you don't? Probably. I mean, uh, I guess you wouldn't listen to someone who's telling you to do something when you're actively seeing them do something different themselves. So maybe it doesn't stop them being clinicians and doctors, but maybe it should make them a little more circumspecting the advice that they might offer. Yeah, the, the mechanism, I mean, I guess there are several mechanisms, but one is um, uh, how much advice they actually give to the their patient on uh, changing their lifestyles, how many referrals they make for the patient to stop smoking. So some of it is uh, directly uh, work-related, which I, I feel uh, should be changed, but some of it yeah. is more the messenger effect. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Um, one of the things that it does, you know, that we'll all agree on is that it requires us to get to get more and better data. And evidence of this kind is is central to our understanding of 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 what we might do about anything. Really, it's just just more and better data, and, and, and our abilities to interpret and understand it is is absolutely vital. Yeah, uh, but. A lot of this, unfortunately, a lot of this information is gleaned from measuring rather than asking. So coming back to your initial statement, looking quantitatively at the data, but also looking at, at stories and, and people's yeah. uh, real lives. And, and that's the part that we're really missing. No, it, no, it is. No it, no, it absolutely is. I, um, we know that, you know, we know that narratives and stories are, are fundamental to our understanding and sense making of the world, of our coping strategies, um, and so it's 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 been surprising that there hasn't been there's been you know a reasonable amount of research on on the role of personal narratives in people's psychological well being, but much much less you know discussion about the role of social narratives in policy making. Um, and uh, I think there's certainly certainly much more work that can be done there, and I'd welcome anybody who's on this call to show you taking some of that forward in their, in their own work and in their own lives as far as that's possible. So um, some of the work I do is on uh, patients with multiple chronic conditions and how the health system treats those patients. So a patient has maybe diabetes and they can still carry on working and they see a GP and maybe a specialist, all's fine. Um, they then develop depression or maybe have some heart problems. So then suddenly they're seeing three specialists and the GP can't cope and they, because they have so many appointments, they leave the workforce either because they are not allowed to take so much time off or they feel guilty about taking so much time off. And the mental health um, deterioration actually means they stop taking their tablets for their diabetes and their heart disease. And so there's a, there's a tipping point beyond which the patient 
their quality of life will deteriorate by a very significant amount. And our health system currently does not, it's not um, built to deal with these types of patients. And, um, and actually one in three adults will um, develop more than one chronic condition. So we're, it's really not, the way we manage people, it's really not fit for purpose. And, and when we talk to patients with uh, chronic conditions, their main concern is quite often not the diabetes or the um, depression, it's, it's quite often chronic pain which again, we, we don't deal with very well. So we're not really um, engaging with the, with the patients in a way that's um, best for them. And I remember, it sort of reminds me in a way of going back to the early quality days where, you know, before then it was really just, you know, well, actually it's obviously still to some large extent, but it was, you know, sort of doctor knows best and we won't bother inquiring into, into what patients or, or, or you know, people who actually experience from our, interventions and there was some significant resistance from the clinicians back in those days that was back in the early 90s when i was working on that to to the use of these kinds of these kinds of metrics because well i mean what do patients know <laughs> so, uh, so uh yeah for all their real i mean just flushing i think just flushing out some of these discussions and, some, and having some transparency in them is helpful even even if we don't always and even if we aren't always able to quantify them and specify them in qualities or wellbeings or whatever, just just kind of flushing out the discussions around what living better means, uh, I guess, is, is, is in itself a contribution. Okay, doesn't look like there are any questions from the audience. We have obviously answered them all. Um, so, um, Sophie, any anything to add or before we close? Um, no, <laughs> I had a list of questions, but I think they've all been um, answered. Just be interested to know, Paul, what are you working on now? Kind of what's your, where's your interest um, gone? Are you still focusing on wellbeing research or has it shifted? Yeah, thank you, Sophie. So I am interested in the polarisation issue. That's uh, what prompted me to do the Duck Rabbit podcast. I'm, I'm doing this the other way around to podcasts. Normally people write a book and then they do a podcast. I'm using the podcast as a, a sort of data and material and thoughts for a book. So I think I will, I think my next trade book will be on the duck rabbit problem. Um, I am. Do you want to explain what that is? Because I'm not sure if the audience will know. No, I should. No, sorry. I keep forgetting that people might. Obviously, I just say duck, duck rabbit is shorthand and people may not have seen the illusion. If anybody hasn't, you can just immediately and easily type into Google duck rabbit illusion and you'll get an image presented to you. Um, of a duck and a rabbit, it's one image, but you can see the animal in two ways. And it's the title of my new podcast, um, and which I should say, which I've said on every podcast, I should be able to say this seamlessly, available wherever you get your podcast. Um, that you, it's a nice metaphor for how we become polarized. I actually got this from uh, a panel discussion that Nick Chater at Warwick was on at the start of the pandemic where he used the metaphor really nicely to have people come to see COVID and you sort of see the image in one way and then once you start seeing it that way it's very hard to see it differently you surround yourself with people who see it similarly till in the end you can't imagine how anyone can see it as a rabbit is obviously a duck um, and that, so that's a nice way in which we take sides on many issues so I'm trying to think about those issues and how we can 
kind of break down some of those polarized debates. Um, really interested in seeing if, if there's ways in which we can be more accepting of difference, not necessarily agree with other people or reach a consensus, but just accept that they might be different. Um, that's that's going to be a big, big, big part of my future work. I've been galvanized by COVID in a you know, whole host of ways to sort of brought together all of my research interests over the last long time now. Um, and I'm really interested in trying to think of ways in which we can which we can embed better practice into future decision making, not just in a pandemic, but in calmer times too. I have called for a wellbeing commission to be created. Um, I'd like the public inquiry that takes place next year to have a much broader remit than focusing on could we have led to fewer deaths if we if we if we'd locked down earlier. I'd like to have it consider why there has been very little regard for the impact that we've had on younger people, children, why 20,000 children are still missing from schools, um, whose lives are not going to turn out very well, what, what measures were in place to deal with them, even, even, even if the policy responses that we made were the right ones, even if they were, um, what, what should we have done better to mitigate those harms? I'm, I've been so surprised that we have still continued to talk about this as a health crisis when it's clearly an economic one. I mean, some people have talked about that a bit, but a social one as well. And um, I'm just frustrated. I wrote, a, I wrote an op-ed in, in, in March or April last year, um, which was about how there's a very narrow set of perspectives informing decision-making. Um, and that hasn't changed very much since. So I think that's, that's really where my where my interests are going. I, I, I really care about diversity and I care about it across characteristics that are not typically thought of when we think about diversity um, of opinion, belief, thought, um, and lived lived experience. I know that's a, it's a widely used term now and often abused term, um, but I would, be, I would have been just much more comfortable in knowing, or knowing, but you know, in thinking that closing the schools was the right thing to do if I was confident that there was someone who really understood the, the lives and experiences of children that were being asked to stay at, stay at home. And what seemed particularly unfair is that they, this group were at the lowest level of risk but bore the, the biggest brunt um, of the measures. And uh, I, I agree with you, without lack of, without, without transparency on um, what they were being asked to do. Um, and uh, I think we see the same issue with the vaccines now becoming available for younger people. I think we need more transparency about um, why people are being offered vaccines. Um, yeah, it would be a really, it's a really, that's a really interesting ethical discussion to get into uh, at some point is when, as seems likely, the vaccines are going to be made available to children. Um, Bases on which they ought to take them. That's a that's a that's a really interesting question. Yeah, and I agree with you. We need transparency. And and if people are interested, the uh, Michael Marmot report, Build Back Fairer, really goes into detail on socioeconomic conditions and the impact of austerity on COVID, uh, severe COVID, and on um, COVID deaths, and makes some recommendations for how to better deal with that going forward. Um, so um, that's been a really fantastic uh, discussion, uh, Paul, and, and clearly it's a very 
complex area. We don't have solutions, but I think we're all in agreement that there's quite a big differential between what we measure clinically in terms of somebody's body weight and, and what uh, may be appropriate for them in at a societal level and for their own well-being, which really doesn't seem to have been measured. What we're doing is clearly not working. And uh, on the whole, I think we need more transparency and less judgment going forward when we talk about body weight and, and tackle body weight issues. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on, on that. Uh, the more transparency, less judgment on on most things. I mean, I, I, I've been struck this last year about some of the certainty that people have had in the responses we've been making. I think you can't, I don't know how anybody could know. It's like, I, I, it, it really troubles me, especially amongst the academic community. I kind of expect it a bit more of advocacy groups and journalists and people who have an agenda, but amongst the academic community, I, I've been really troubled by that degree of both certainty and consensus. Uh, it can't be right. So there is a, was a series of um, uh, uh, two weekly meetings on COVID with epidemiologists, scientists, immunologists, virologists called COVID known unknowns, recognising exactly that, that this is a new condition. We don't know the complexity of this condition nor the impact that um, the virus the prevention measures or any of it has on society. So it's, it was really to bring forward the, the science in an apolitical way. And some of that did fit with a narrative and some of that did not fit with the narrative and the policies. Um, but it was a safe space to present all of that. And I, I agree that the certainty of the science um, it, it wasn't that it, it seemed very inappropriate at times in the handling of, of COVID. Um, maybe we should have another session on COVID as it is <laughs> something that uh, it's hard to get, to get away from. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, thanks to uh, Sophie and to the audience. And uh, the, the session is recorded, so will be made available tomorrow. And Paul, if you would like to share a link to your books or, or anything else, then send them to me and I'll share those too. Okay, we'll do. Thank you. Thank, thank you both very much. Thank you, Sophie. Um, and thank everybody for staying with us. Uh, it's a great honour that people have stuck around this long. <laughs> yeah, quite a big crowd as well. Yeah, thanks. Thank it was great to talk to you. All great. right, cheers. Bye-bye. Have a nice evening, everybody. And yourself. Bye.